everyone, and welcome to MLS Assist, a podcast created to give insight into Major League Soccer's on-field action. I'm Joe Lowry, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jordan Angeli. Jordan, how are you doing today? I'm good, Joe. Yeah, it's... I know you live in Arizona again, but like there's something about when it starts to be like the playoff push and the the air changes and it gets a little cooler. You're just trying to make me jealous. I can tell. I, know, I, have, a, I have a sweatshirt on. Oh, right my now. goodness. I, yeah. I don't mean this, but I hate you a little bit right now. <laughs> I know you don't mean it. It's all it's all like out of you just wish you could have it a little bit. It's jealousy. That's what it is. That's where it's rooted for sure. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, we're still in. We're still dealing with hundred plus degree temperatures over here, but that's okay because. Yeah. How I spend, are you though? I, I'm good because I wasn't outside this weekend. I spent it inside watching Major League Soccer, um, right. and so I can do that in sunny weather and wintry weather, in rain or shine, doesn't matter. Can I just say too? Congrats! You launched your newsletter, Benched. I did. Thank you. First of all, I wasn't yeah. planning. I honestly wasn't planning to plug that, and you did I it know, for me, which makes you the perfect. I type know woman. you were. I know you were, and that's why I wanted to do it. So uh, I want to make sure, can you tell people, I know that I just saw it on Twitter and I retweeted it, but if people want to follow along and get uh, little tidbits from Joe in their emails, how do they do that? So go ahead and either follow me on Twitter at Joe and Cleats, and there's a, there's plenty of links there, or go to benched.substack.com. It's kind of a double meaning because I've been benched from writing other places because of the global pandemic and the economy. <laughs> and also, I spent a fair amount of time on the bench growing up playing sports. And so it's, it's oh my, my look gosh. on sports, and I'm just going to have some fun and flex my writing muscles a little bit hey. because smart people think that's a good idea. And you learn on the bench. so You honestly do learn on the bench. And we'll talk about, actually, some people who maybe are learning on the bench throughout okay. our listener questions. Show that was a beautiful, completely unintentional transition that I'm actually pretty proud of. We'll get to that question <laughs> later on. Jordan, today is listener questions. We talked mm-hmm. about it last week. People send in some really awesome questions on Twitter throughout the week. So thank you to everyone who submitted questions. We won't get to all of you, but seriously, you guys rocked yeah. it. Um, we're going to to hit at seven, eight, nine questions today. Some are sub questions under other questions, and so we'll get into it pretty quick here. Jordan, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. Okay, let's go. This first question is from Ivan Escalante, who says, who asks, rather, is Ben Olsen on the hot seat? Is DC a contender for a playoff spot? Should DC fire Ben Olsen? So that's like three questions on its own, even though we're just counting it as one. A lot of pent up disappointment at DC United, it seems like in those questions, plural. Yeah. And it wasn't the only question we got. In regards to DC United, Tim Murray also said, are Ben Olsen's tactics as crude as they appear to be? So I I think that if you're a DC United fan, you have seen this team win trophies or compete in a a lot of MLS seasons. So you're always going to have that as your foundation. And when they don't seem like they're a team that you would even ask the question, are they a contender for a playoff spot when 10 of 14 teams in the East make the playoffs? Like, that's pretty harsh question. Can we talk about that for a second? Actually, I just want to rant about it for half a second. I know the season is weird, (laughs) and I know the league structure has had to change over and over again, and I feel for the people responsible for formulating whatever the season is going to look like. But 10 teams out of 14 making the playoffs, that's not even playoffs at that point. That's just almost everybody and their mother being invited in to play these games. That's a little ridiculous to me. But getting into D.C. United, they've won one game since March. Yes, there was a several-month break in there, but I still think that's a powerful little statistic there. They've won one game since March, and that was a few weeks ago against a struggling New York Red Bulls team. Ten teams come out of the playoffs, and they're still on the outside looking in to those ten teams that will make the field. 
Relating specifically to Ben Olson, Stephen Goff of the Washington Post recently reported that per someone close to D.C. United, Ben Olson, who has been in charge of D.C. for 10 seasons now, will not have to worry about his job status barring endless embarrassing defeats. That was a direct quote. Endless embarrassing defeats. I would argue, Jordan, that D.C. United are are teetering on the precipice of that. Yes, Uh they they drew 2-2 against Toronto FC this past week. But we're only a couple weeks removed from them registering zero shots for an entire 90-minute span against NYCFC. I mean, they're sixth worst in the league in goals scored, third worst in expected goals, second worst in expected goal differential, and they've taken the fewest shots in Major League Soccer this season. The numbers are bleak. Yeah. I like that you bring the numbers in because I looked at it from how I see this team play. That's important. And and I think that these things actually match up really well, even though they're very different things. It looks to me like we've known Ben Olsen. We knew who he was as a player. He's been with the club since 1998, like since almost the foundation of Major League Soccer. So we knew who he was as a player. He was gritty. He was intense. And his that really translated for a while into how his teams play. This season... I feel like DC is caught in between these two feelings of they want to be a team who plays, but then they also want to be gritty. And you see it in a lot of moments in the way that they play. They get caught in between, are we going to press this ball? So one person goes and then that person gets caught all by themselves and the other team just exploits the space that that person uh, leaves. So they're caught in between these two minds. And I, I actually think the first goal against Toronto was a good example of it. And it was tough for the defender getting caught in, in this in between where he was like, I don't know if I should head it or if I should clear it with my right foot or if I clear, should clear it with my left foot. Well, a head or a left foot would have been the best choice, but <laughs> clears it with, clears it with the right. It's weird across your body. You're in between these two minds and it's just an easy goal for Toronto in the end. And I think that that is kind of, it sums up who DC is. You bring in Gressel, creative player. You ask him to be gritty. Well, can he do that occasionally? Yeah, but I just, it doesn't quite fit with me. Like they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. It's funny that you looked at the defensive side of things because when I was trying to break down DC's tactics, I my eyes were drawn to the offensive side of things. I think their biggest problem with the ball is that they don't really have a plan when they get into the final third other than potentially hopeful crosses from wide areas through Julian Mm -hmm. Gressel and sometimes through the left-sided wide players. They get the ball forward in transition. It's almost like they're trying to be the Philadelphia Union a little bit when they have the ball. A couple weeks ago, I think last week in the 2-0 loss to the Red Bulls, DC changed from a 5 at the back shape to a 4-4-2 diamond. That literally looked like, I tweeted this, it looked like uh, Ben Olsen was copying Jim Curtin's homework. And playing that four two uh, four one two one two with Kevin Paredes as that number ten. Yeah, they're trying to get out in transition, which is fine, and it, it actually looks okay. But then when they get in the final third, that speed is gone, and this is when they're sort of caught of two minds. The speed right. is gone, and they're reliant on Julian Gressel whipping the ball in to maybe a few players in the box with no structure around him, and it looks a little bit like the galaxy. And the attack of what we've seen, not so much recently, and credit to them for that, but uh, around MLS's back and before that and through all of last season. There just isn't that structure there. Can I add one more thing? Because you you mentioned Paredes and in this last game that I watched. I am also curious, if you're DC United, it seems to me like you're playing not to lose. Hmm. 
that you put the starting 11 out there who is a team that is not is really defending not to lose instead of playing to win. Why not start Iguain? Why not start Paredes? Two players and and I know that Paredes has started a couple games, but sure. for me, every time they come on, especially Iguain, he changes the game. So why not start with that type of momentum and say we're going to be on the front foot? And yeah, we can defend as a unit and try to not concede goals. But you're almost shifting like playing to not lose as opposed to playing to win. Yeah, you can see it. Do you agree or disagree? I agree with that. I do. And I do think, just to clarify a little bit, you said he started a couple games. Paredes has started a lot of games recently. And I'm not trying to nitpick, but I just want to make that clear for listeners. Yeah, no, okay, that's good. Which is one of the positives from this DC United team. There are a few of them. Paredes starting and becoming a consistent starter and actually playing pretty well, either as a left wing back or as a weird left-sided midfielder or as a number 10, a pseudo number 10, like he did a couple weeks ago against the Red Bulls. That's a positive. He... Griffin Yao and Moses Nyman were all on the field at the same time this past Saturday against Toronto FC. Those are all good things. DC also has their academy fully funded. There are some positive youth developments here, but tactically, Jordan, I agree with everything that you've brought to the table. Uh, Defensively, I agree with that. I think they've lacked identity on both sides of the ball at times, and that is the biggest problem. Ben Olsen's a club legend. He's been around for a long time, but he's not really doing his job. That's part of his job. His team lacks offensive production, they're lacking any real on-field identity. And if you're not doing your job well, your bosses should probably go out and find someone who can do it better. Yeah. My last thing I want to end on positive is Please. that first goal versus Toronto on Saturday is exactly what you imagine when you're setting a defensive structure for your team. Because you're sitting in a 4-4-2 block. And as soon as the ball gets passed back, everyone together jumps the next line and they go pressure the ball. Kamara ends up getting a touch on the ball and is in for about a 40-yard run, 1v1 with the the goalkeeper and scores. Like That is a pinpoint good defensive play that ends in a goal. So um, I just want to credit them. There is some good structure there. It's just... I think they have to decide who they want to be. Get on it, DC United. (laughs) On to our next question. Jordan, do you want to hit this one? Sure. Uh, Matt Koss wants to know, who is the most dangerous regular substitute player in the league? Okay. Before we get into this question, I think it's important to define what we mean by dangerous or what Matt means by dangerous. And we don't have Matt here on the phone with us, but we're going to interpret that. I, I interpreted the word dangerous here to mean coming off the bench causing real issues for the defensive team. Um, So specifically, I was thinking about an offensive-minded player who can drive at players, who can get people to commit to him, create space either for himself or more likely for other people to get on the ball and create something or to score something. How did you think of that word? I was in the same vein because I think it's hard to think of a dangerous regular sub if you aren't an attacking player because if you're a dangerous defender, it probably means you're not a regular (laughs) sub. And you're a little bit more um, steady in the lineup or you're you're dangerous and you're creating danger for your own team, which is probably <laughs> not good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I also equated the word intelli- intelligence to it because I think that you have to have the wherewithal to sit on the bench, watch the game, pick it apart and then go in and execute. Hmm. Yeah, that's, the mental side of it is a good point as well. My first sub here, my first dangerous regular sub 
This one I almost feel lazy putting in because it just is so cliche at this I point. I think but I did too. It's Ilsenio. I felt a little bad, but I looked at the numbers, especially from last year. Last season, he was incredible off the bench. So this season, a little bit less so. But last year, he had five goals and eight assists in just over 1,000 minutes. That's really, really good numbers coming off the bench for the Philadelphia Union. Ilsenio, even this season, comes on at right wing, and he stays there. He dribbles at people. He creates things. He does good things from that right-sided spot. And I also love it because he often triggers, when he comes on, he often triggers a change to a 4-4-2 or some some sort of flatter midfield shape. And that puts Aronson on the wing, on the left side. And mm-hmm. I love watching Aronson on the wing. So it's a little bit of a two-fold thing for me. Right. I like that. That was one of the players that I thought of. Um, I think Jonathan Lewis is the first player that comes to mind for me hmm. because his work off the bench, he has four goals on the season. Three of them are from that off the bench type of role. His last goal this this last weekend, he scored from a starting position. But he is on the other side. He's on the left side. And one of the things that I think Jonathan Lewis oozes is confidence. So he comes into the game and he is confident that he is going to make that defender feel uncomfortable with the way that he goes at them. And I think that there's almost this little chip on his shoulder, too, that he's not starting. And so he wants to go prove why he should be starting. And that translation hasn't quite been there, really, of being a consistent sub goal scorer to being a consistent starter goal scorer or contributor. And you said that, right? It doesn't always have to be goal scoring. It could be coming in and pulling players towards you, dragging players out of the space that then another player could occupy is kind of how you started this all. So uh, I think Jonathan Lewis is definitely a player that my brain goes to pretty quickly. Yeah, he's dangerous on that left side for the Rapids, mm-hmm. cutting in cutting in sometimes on his right foot, getting out in yeah. transition. He can do those things really well off the bench. And, that, and that's one of the reasons I think he does a really good job is he has both of those skill sets. He can go to his left and get to the end line and, and cross or pass the ball across the middle of the field or he can cut in on his right and he has this nice whipped shot from about five ten yards in from the corner of the box where he likes to uh, tee up and see if he can put it in the back post so uh, he kind of gives you two different things my second sub a guy we've already talked about Federico Iguain for DC United he has shown us Jordan's calling for him to start he has shown us start him that even when he's not starting he can change games off the bench. He slots in as a pure attacking midfielder. He can go where he wants. He's that number 10. He can move around. He can drop deep and carry the ball forward. He can drop deep and spray passes forward. He can get the ball high and work between the lines. He is able to get on the field. We saw this in the MLS's back tournament. He can get on the field, start chipping people, and play dangerous balls in behind the back line. I love having a playmaker like Iguain come off the bench because they can be super, super effective when the game is stretched back and forth in those later phases of a match. Mm-hmm. He's so good. He's just... He, his awareness of other players' body positioning, the defensive structure of a team, the defensive pressure of a team on him when he's about to receive the ball or even when the ball's at his feet, is so... It is so good. I don't even know how to explain it besides that. Like, he really moves and evades pressure so well. I, I really enjoy watching him play. I'm with you. Who you got next, Jordan? I don't know how many you have. I just have one more after Iguain. Yeah, I, I'm going to go with this one. And you said you said this about um, Ilsenio. But 
And I know this player starts some and comes off the bench some, but I think in his age, he is he is kind of becoming a, a super sub in some ways. Do, can we have this conversation without saying Chris Wondolowski? Oh, no, we can't. I just really think we can't. And one of the things that I feel like Wondolowski has done is he wasn't a very highly rated player when he came into the league. And he created that over a span of a lot of years. He wasn't really a goal scorer until maybe midway through a few years into his uh, MLS career. And so that work on who he was as a player and his knowledge of the game and how he can unlock a defense, I think translates to him being a substitute and saying, okay, I'm using that same like intensity because I think that's a good word to describe him, right? Intense. He is an intense player. Uh, He's using that same intensity to figure out how a team can be broken down and then to come in if you can use him as a sub and you don't need him from the beginning I think that's really how he is best suited but then again I think San Jose needs like five Wondolowskis right now so (laughs) I was gonna say the San Jose Earthquakes have a lot of problems Chris Wondolowski is not one of them he is one of the solutions one of the few solutions that they seem to have right now having Wando coming off the bench is always a good thing and I think every single team in Major League Soccer would take that yeah Oh, yeah, they would. Okay, my last guy. Do you have any more, Jordan, or is this nope, it for both of us? Okay, the last player I have, he hasn't necessarily been dangerous off the bench, but that's more because his entire team hasn't really been dangerous in the attack. I wanted to mention Valentin Castellanos for NYCFC. Dangerous off the dribble, fine space well, deceptively good with his passing. I just felt he needed to be mentioned because I think he's too good not to start, and right now he's not starting for NYCFC. Yeah, I think that's a good shout because he is, you know, I've had a front view of watching him play twice this season in stadium um, for for the Columbus crew and once when they played away. And just to watch his movement and it comes into that intelligence, his movement off the ball, it really helps connect the lines for New York City. And he also is super threatening in the box and... You're right. Is he one of those players? If you could, would you have him as a starter or would you bring him off the bench? I think NYCFC need a change of shape right now. They've been in a 4-3-3 with really narrow pinched in wingers, which first of all does seem to fit Castellanos' skill set, but it's not working for them. They're not able to find space and move the ball forward consistently and create chances. So seeing something different, maybe that's like a 5-3-2 with Castellanos playing off a bear as those yeah. front two, and maybe they try to play a little bit more without the ball since that's what Ronnie Dyla seems to want to do. Lean, Why not lean fully into that and get those two players higher up the field, working off of each other and moving into space? Ooh, I like that idea. Okay. All right. On to our next question. We've gone through ourselves. We've gone through DC United. This one is from Gregory Michael. He asks, how can the Timbers adapt their attacking play without Sebastian Blanco? Do you think Abouzi can adapt and contribute from the right wing position? So that's two questions. We'll break it down one by one here. Jordan, first of all, how do the Timbers respond and how do they play without Sebastian Blanco in the attack? The thing that comes to mind first and foremost is you can't replace like for like a Sebastian Blanco with the squad that they already have. Yeah. And I think that once you kind of realize that and you can move on from that and say, okay, we're going to have to play maybe a little bit different or we're going to have to allow other players to shine a little bit more, then you can let your team be the team that it is without being like, oh, well, if we had Blanco, right? So you have to 
realize that um, unfortunately injuries happen and the team has to continue moving forward. So uh, I think that they have to allow some of the players that they have to shine a little bit. The the player that I circled and I am wondering, can he contribute like they hoped he was could contribute is Jimmy Chara. Hmm. Do you think that he can come in this lineup, Joe? This is now a question. I'm, I'm bringing it back to you. Bring it. Do you think he can come in this lineup and be a player who plays significant minutes for them? Because he hasn't been that yet. He got some minutes this past week. I don't yeah. think. No, and I'm not trying to. Yeah. I'm not trying to correct you there. I'm just thinking through this. He he played a little bit more now that Blanco has been out. I think he will receive more minutes, and that's maybe not a hot take because they're simply a player down, and everybody on the depth chart yeah. moving up a rung. But they brought Jimmy Chara in for a reason. He can get out in space and transition, which is something that the Portland Timbers like to do. He can dribble at someone. He can create a little bit when he gets into the final third. I think we're going to see more of Chara. I don't think he's going to be even close to where Sebastian Blanco was, not just because Blanco was so good, but also because Chara just hasn't shown the ability to be consistent with his attacking production so far. Mm -hmm. But I do think he's going to factor in significantly more over on the left side than he was in the middle chunk of the season because he started playing minutes early on, then wasn't getting as much time on the field. Now we're going to see him more for Gio Savarese. You made a couple of points there where I feel like Jimmy Chara can be that connector piece in transition. What the Portland Timbers were using Blanco for is that outlet player who then springs the attack, right? Because you you said he's good with the ball in space. He can run onto it or he can receive it and drive at the back line or at players in the midfield to commit numbers. I think the thing that is different there is Blanco defended a lot. And I don't think he got enough credit for that. I know we talked about it during MLS's back tournament. So if you play Jimmy Chara there, who one, is he going to put that defensive work in? Two, will he, if he doesn't, where do those loads go? And can the team withstand those loads when he doesn't quite track back as much? And those are all very legitimate questions. Yeah. The other half of this question is, do you think Jeremy Abobasi can adapt and contribute from the right wing position? So to explain this briefly, Mm -hmm. with Sebastian Blanco gone, that means the Portland Timbers are down a winger. And historically, and we've already seen it some since Blanco's gone down, that means that Jeremy Abobasi, who has played on the wing in the past, shifts back and shifts wide and plays one of those wing spots. He's played the right wing position a couple of times recently. So that means Blanco's gone. You shift either the right winger over to the left side or just play a different left winger over there where Blanco was and put Abobasi on the right and then either Felipe Mora or Nier Skoda up top. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, can Abobasi adapt to that spot? Can he contribute from that spot? My answer to that is sure. I mean, he's played wide in the past, but he's not a winger. And I think that's important to say he's not a natural wide attacker. He looks clunky out there at times when he has the ball, especially off the ball. He can move into space. And I think he's really good at finding pockets of space to be able to receive it and quickly turn and either run forward or pass the ball forward. I think he's good at those things from the nine spot or from the wing. But on the ball out wide, he's going to look awkward at times in the Timbers and Timbers fans are pretty much just going to have to accept that. I, it's funny that you said that was your answer because I said, I personally don't think it's a no, (laughs) which is like, yeah, of course he can do it. But why would you take one of your most productive players, your most dangerous players in the nine spot attacking wise? Why would you take that player and move them into a spot where they're less able to contribute to the attack? Yeah. Yeah. 
And I think that's the question. Are you willing to sacrifice a Boba C? Because think about it as a nine, you're playing a lot with your back to goal. So a lot of the connection pieces you have are in front of you and then you're spinning. Well, when you're on the wing, your back is not, is to the sideline a lot of the time. And so it just changes your point of view and it makes all your decisions a little bit different because you're used to connecting back and moving forward. Now you have to figure out how to occupy internal space, that space inside in the channel or in the half space and then run into the channel. It's, it's so many different decisions that can he do it? Of course, he's a smart player. And we've talked about that time and time again. But I just don't think that's the shout for the Portland Timbers. I played right back growing up. I spent a lot of time playing right back or right center back playing soccer. One game, I played left back. My coach put me a left back and I was so confused. It felt so weird. It felt so wrong. And Jordan, I know you've played a ton of different positions. Yeah. And so just thinking through that and thinking about that game, I remember it very clearly being on the mm-hmm. left half of the field and just how wrong it felt. If a yeah. Bobisi can shift over, be solid defensively at that right-sided midfield spot and contribute something in the attack, more power to him. But I do think, and I, I think Gio Savarese might be thinking this as well, maybe leaving a Bobisi up top as a number nine, which he played in their most recent game against the Earthquakes, that 6-1 win, Leaving him up top, letting him score goals, and simply finding another wide player who's maybe not as good overall as a Bobasi, and whichever number nine you pair with him if you move him wide, but still allows a Bobasi to play that nine spot, maybe that's worth it. And maybe that's mm-hmm. what we're going to see from the Portland Timbers. Yeah, that would be how I would go. But again, thankful I'm not that decision maker. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Jordan, uh, we ready for the next question? Yeah, let's get to it. Zach Barry? Beery. Beery? I think Beery. I think it's Beery. It's a cool name, Beer with a Y. Yeah. I I like that. Cheers to you. (laughs) (laughs) How are Dallas and Houston going to replace the two Portugal-bound players, Cannon and Elise? They're both gone, officially. As of this morning, Albert Elise has been transferred to Bovista in Portugal. Reggie Cannon is already there. Are you going to watch more Bovista games? Because now there's two players who, one... Albert Elise, the excitement that he brings to a team, but then just the U.S. connection for Reggie Cannon. I feel like it'll be fun to see those two play with each other and not against each other for a little bit. On that right side, you get two guys coming from Texas and Major League Soccer to Portugal. I'll definitely be watching more of Bovista. I'm probably going to rely on compilations posted on Twitter, but I'll tune in when I can. And Total Soccer Show. And Total Soccer Show. You're right. They'll actually do... They'll do a really good job of covering that. Um, We'll have to we'll have to lean into that for sure. So the question is, how are Dallas and Portland going to replace those two guys? Well, I was going to ask you because I know we we spoke about this before. How do you feel like Dallas is going to replace Cannon? I think they're going to replace him with Brian Reynolds. Young, really promising attacking right back. One of the guys I'm most excited about in this young American player pool I've just sort of been alerted to him recently, getting minutes in Reggie Cannon's absence for Lucha Gonzalez. He fits the mold of an aggressive attacking fullback. He's 19. He can get forward. He's got long legs, six foot three, incredible speed, like Alfonso Davies speed. And that's Mm. not like that's I I can say that like that's not a forbidden term because Alfonso Davies a couple years ago or a season ago was in Major League Soccer. And so I feel comfortable making that comparison, not because Brian Reynolds will be Alfonso Davies. But because we've seen that kind of speed on the field in MLS before. And to me, it looks like that's exactly what Brian Reynolds has. Yeah. Well, a related question we had from Long Diagonals was, how does Brian Reynolds' game differ from Reggie Cannon's? I dug into this. I dug into film and I watched actually Reggie Cannon's first 
game. This was posted by Waki on Twitter. I watched his first game for Boa Vista and his, his touches from that match. They're different players right now. And even when Reggie Cannon was 19, so that's like two, three years ago, I think Cannon <laughs> is a better, he's a better combiner. So he's able to get on the ball more, play quicker one twos up the side. Reynolds is more of a galloper and he's more of a crosser. But he does both of those things very well. Reynolds, I think, is even a better crosser than Cannon is right now. So when Reynolds is on the ball high up the field on the attacking third, the way that he he bends his crosses in looks like a Gressel cross. Not every time, but consistently looks like a dangerous cross from that right-sided spot. Reggie Cannon, I think the ball is loft a little bit more. I think they float a little bit more. Reynolds is more dangerous when he has the ball and is getting ready to whip it in. Kind of that cross is what we see maybe from Trent Alexander Arnold as well, where the inside of the foot whipped in ball from a little bit deeper. Is that kind of where he likes to serve it? In that mold, yes. Very, very far down on the ladder of of those crossing abilities. But that's as far as a type comparison. That's perfect. Okay, cool. So he can get crosses in high up the field. The other thing, and to contrast it to the last point to answer Long Diagonal's question, Reggie Cannon is a better defender than Brian Reynolds. I watched FC Dallas versus the Colorado Rapids. The games are running together now because we're getting a lot of big games, but I think it was midweek of this past week. Jonathan Lewis turned Brian Reynolds a lot in that game. Lewis drove down that left side, so where Reynolds is defending on the right side, and would cut inside onto Lewis's right foot over and over again, and Reynolds kept getting beaten. So as quick as he is in the open field, he's not as quick moving his feet decisively when he's back defending against a winger. So that's just something to watch. And that gives a few points of comparison of what to expect from Brian Reynolds versus what Dallas fans have been seeing with Reggie Cannon. Right. But also to know Dallas is doing pretty good with, even without Reggie Cannon. They haven't missed a beat, which is yeah. very impressive. Right. Okay, so let's move on to Houston and how they're going to replace. What does he call himself? Like with the Panther thing that he does, he call himself the Panther. I think so. I think it's in you Spanish, but the English translation. Yeah, yeah. Um, how do they replace him? I think it's with a couple guys they already have on the roster, and then they're also digging around in the transfer market from all reports. Yeah. As far as on the roster guys, they've got Nico Hansen, who started a couple games on that right wing. And then they have Ariel Lasseter, who I really like out on the right. He's fast. He's skilled. He can use both feet. He can move inside, allowing the right back to overlap. And it gives Tab Ramos that really excellent spacing and the attack that he's playing with out of that 4-3-3. The Houston Dynamo look much better in their spacing now than they did at the start of the season, which is exactly how it should be. Lasseter helps contribute to that out on the right side of the field. Those are the two in-roster options right now, but they're looking. They're looking for a player. One guy whose name is surfacing, Mateo Bajamich. Hopefully I'm saying that right. Wow, I was going to say, impressed that you nailed that. Yeah, I should have just gone and and pretended. I'm (laughs) going to say that that's right. Mateo Bajamich, 21-year-old Argentinian attacker. There's been reports from Tom Bogert and others that the Dynamo are strongly interested in him. Sunderland interested as well. He is a curious option to replace hmm. Elise on that right side. Why do you say curious? So I was looking into the background of Bajamic, and he's only ever played in the second division of Argentina. And I don't know about you, Jordan, but I don't often see a lot of second division players from almost anywhere outside of England or any of the other top five leagues in Europe. I don't see a lot of them being linked to MLS. So right. then that made me wonder, well, why? What is this guy good at? Why are the Dynamo interested in him? And so I watched some film. He's 21 years old, as I said, so he's a young guy. He's right-footed. Tell me, tell me if any of this sounds familiar. He's okay. right-footed. 
He plays direct on that right wing. He can take a big touch to beat someone. He can get to the end line and pull a cross back, or he can just drive straight by you and, and shoot a hard shot low to the far post. Does any of that sound at all familiar? No, no, not at all. Not even the qualities that Albert Elise had. No, not one <laughs> bit. <laughs> and that's the thing, right? There are shades, shades. Yeah. I want to make that very clear because this is not the same player and he's coming from a very different place and is likely playing what well, he is playing against very different opponents in a different yes. level of opposition. Yes. Those are all important things to say. But from what I've seen of Bajimic and from the players that he's playing against, he is a strong, direct traditional winger in the sense that he plays on the side of his dominant foot mm-hmm. he's good at everything in the attack yeah. and that's promising and that makes me understand a little bit why the dynamo are digging into the argentinian second division for players and how about this players have come now to mls from various leagues played in mls and then been sold to europe so almost like not just the homegrown talent and developing homegrown talent but can Houston with Tab Ramos, someone who's good at developing younger talent from his pedigree and his background, bring a player in, say, this is what we need from you. This is where you have to get better. This is how you can help our team mold him into the best version that he can be and then sell him off to to what's next. Is that potentially an option? Absolutely. Get him in, get him in the system for a a season, a season and a half, two seasons, move him on. That model needs to be adopted by more teams in MLS, and Tab Ramos mm-hmm. is the guy, if the Dynamo want to do that, he's the guy to lead that change. Yeah, cool. Well, you nailed that question. Thank you. Thank you. Someone to watch for. Keep an eye out for Bajimic. I'm interested to see if he ends up in MLS, or at the very least, watch Lasseter, watch Reynolds for FC Dallas. These are two guys that I've really enjoyed getting to watch as a couple more established MLS players have been sold on to Europe. Sweet. All right, moving on to the next one. Jordan, this one is not for you only, but I'm going to ask it to you because it connects. This one is from Connor Cape, who says, Cole Bassett now leads the team. This is the Colorado Rapids and goal involvement with six. He's got three assists and three goals. Sam Bynes is still a top defender and now has two assists and one goal. How are the youths for the Colorado Rapids being so effective? Well, Connor Cape, I first have to say... That's my pal. I used to call games with Connor Cape. He's still calling games for the Colorado Rapids um, for Altitude Radio. So go listen to him if you want to watch the game and listen to him on the radio. That's what I tend to do. Um, so thank you, Connor, for this question. I also have to say, I, I feel like Cole Bassett and Sam Vines are interesting characters, right? Because when And this is something that we see all in MLS, is that these kids are developed from the academy level, they're pushed to the first team, and then it's like if they get to the first team and they sign that contract, people expect for them to perform and to not be a kid anymore. And it's hard, it's hard to to balance that, right? Because you're playing with the first team, so you should be treated like any other player on the first team. But then again, the mistakes that they make or the things that they need to learn from or learn about in the game kind of get highlighted a little bit more. I think we're seeing that this season, especially with Sam Vines. He's had a little bit of an up and down year. And one of the things that I think is beneficial for Vines in his up and down year is he's finding ways to come from a bad game and perform in the next game. So he's figuring out how to rebound. Okay, that's big growth, right? And it's probably a reason why he's been able to contribute. Uh, For Cole Bassett, I feel like he, just as a a player and 
his presence on the ball physically, he looked like he like buffed up this winter. Do you yeah. agree? Yes, definitely. Like Cole Bassett went from a boy to a man in my mind. And I'm like, whoa, look at this. He's not a kid anymore. And I think he's playing like not a kid anymore. So why are they contributing more? If you hear Robin Fraser talk, one of the things he talks about a lot is using the space. And I think that this is the reason why these two are uh, succeeding. And over the last few games, I think we can take Dallas maybe out of the picture because sure. it was just a poor performance. Um, it, it actually wasn't a poor performance. It was they were playing pretty well. They got scored on and then they couldn't rebound from that score and, and stay in the game. So what I've been noticing from the Rapids and, and you tell me this is they're really stretching the field when they have the ball. Yeah. And a, a lot of that, we talked about route one where they're going their back line to the center forward and then playing off the center forward. But when they're doing that, they're stretching inside in those three in the middle. It's usually Acosta, Bassett and uh, Price. They're using those players to really stretch and have long distances between them. So I think the space has allowed Cole Bassett to then um, fill in the gaps with a little bit later of a run. I think he's better deeper, not as a 10, not as a six, as an eight. And they're playing with two eights, Acosta and Bassett. And so Bassett in that space, he really can read a run. He The runs that he has remind me of Steven Gerrard in a way. Gerrard really good at the timing runs and leaving the space unoccupied until he needs to get into it. And I, that's one of the biggest things that I've seen from Cole Bassett and how he's improved in this offseason. I think watching Cole Bassett, he doesn't do anything at a crazy good elite level for a 19-year-old central midfielder. He doesn't do one thing, maybe other than those runs, actually, because I do think he does those very well. Yeah. He doesn't do, he doesn't perform any one task at an incredible level. But he performs pretty much every job that you want from a number eight at a good level, at an yeah. above average level, even for Major League Soccer as a whole at any age. He's right footed. He actively checks his shoulders when yes. he's working as the ball is rolling to him, as he's waiting to receive the ball. He'll check his shoulders three, four, five times. He's active with that. And that allows him to manipulate the space, to find the ball and to turn and to get forward. Then when he gets forward, he likes to drive at defenders. This was something that caught me off guard a little bit. I wasn't expecting when I went back to review footage of Cole Bassett, him to rely on taking on a player 1v1 around the box so much. I don't always love where he ends up after the 1v1s because oftentimes he'll take shots from pretty low percentage areas, but he'll get on the ball. He'll drive 1v1 at someone, create a little bit of space with a quick touch with the outside of his right foot and take a shot. He can create space for himself. Mm -hmm. which is something that you, maybe you don't see for a lot of from a lot of young number eights. And you can also create space for others. And all of those things put together with those late arriving runs that you talked about, Jordan, with his improved physicality, with his role in this Robin Frazier Colorado Rapids team, all of those things are helping Cole Bassett contribute to the goals and the assists for Colorado. Yeah. The thing that I've been thinking about a lot is this is a young player come, came through the academy for the Colorado Rapids, a, a team that hasn't yet sold a player um, to Europe from that ascension in their club. He's scored a couple goals now. He's playing really well. For me, this is the time you have to sell him. You have to actively be selling this kid. I think it's likely, too, because it seems to me that European scouts pretty much are just staring at goals and assists rankings 
for young American players. I mean, I think they're looking at guys who are getting minutes, who are playing, and who have put up some numbers. And mm-hmm. then that's how they're filtering. Uh, that's how they're filtering which players to look at. And Cole Bassett is putting up numbers. And so there's no reason that he's not going to get European attention. Yeah, that's a good point. Before we move on from this question, I want to say one thing. Sam Vines is a really good young left back who I think will be getting and should be getting looks for the national team going forward. That's all I wanted to say about Sam Vines. We've talked about him before. We've talked much less about Bassett in the past. So I think it's appropriate that we devoted this time to him. But I just wanted to squeeze that in because I still really like Sam Vines. Right. And I think what I mentioned earlier is is going to help him make that jump. You can't you can't go through your your pursuit of something bigger than what you're at without ups and downs, without the trial and the difficulties. And, and it's just been a little bit more difficult of a season on him and that's okay. Just keep learning from it. Keep going forward. I love Sam Vines. He's so good. Okay. Um, Speaking of Sam, let's go to Sam Harwood. (laughs) Sam Harwood wants to know, you mentioned pocket winger a while ago. What is that role and how is it used well or poorly? Who is a good example of it? Okay, so I think you've said the term pocket winger before. I had to dig in because I wasn't immediately sure what it was off the top. And from what I found, and this is actually from Caleb Porter a little bit, because this is something that he uses a lot. I was going to say, that's how I know about it. And we'll talk about it. It's a winger who doesn't have to create width, which is wrong, right? That term, like it's a confusing term in that way because wingers should be wide by definition. But we've seen a transition away from that in the modern game. It's a winger who stays inside. They'll play tighter almost in between a, n- a number 10 and a winger. They'll be on that mm-hmm. half space area a lot. It's not an inverted winger because those guys I can still think of Aryan Robin getting the ball wide and driving wide. inside. Yeah. So it's not out to in. It's just in to in. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. And I think what helps me under- understand it too is, Joe, you've talked about dividing the field into vertical channels and it's five channels. It's the Mm -hmm. two outside what you think of the wings. Those are your two outside channels. And then right in between it are the two internal right and left channels. And then you have your center channel. And so an inverted winger or excuse me. So a pocket winger stays mostly in that right or left center channel, I would call them. Yeah. And they live in there. And one of the things that allows them to do that is they're typically, I think of a lot of my examples come from the Columbus crew because I watch them play all the time and they have players that are really good at this. Uh, Eunice Mokhtar, so good at playing this pocket winger. Pedro Santos, so good at playing this pocket winger. And this is why they're good. Both of those players have played as a 10. They're playmakers. They want players around them. They don't they don't always like to be isolated. Can they do well in isolation? Yes. But I think that their ability to create in tighter spaces is better than their ability to uh, be on the channel and create something there. Absolutely. I mean, it's used well. This pocket winger tactic is used well when that player who you're playing in the channel in that right or left half space It's used well when that guy can get on the ball, play on the half turn, work in between the lines, and move the ball forward. It's used poorly when that player isn't comfortable doing that. Maybe it's a winger who's literally just out on the touchline. You wouldn't take Albert Elise, who's a speed guy, working up and down. He wants to dribble at you in space, in isolation. Putting Albert Elise in an interior channel doesn't maximize his skill set, and it's going to have your attack break down. But you put a Pedro Santos, who's the first guy that I thought of for this, because that's even dating back to Greg Berhalter, Pedro Santos played in that interior pocket 
space. Mm-hmm. Putting someone like that who's a little shiftier, a little more creative, who can play as a 10 as well when they need to, that's the type of player you want in the pocket. And I think you see that with the Columbus crew and those two players are really pocket players. And then to juxtapose that with the Columbus crew, Luis Diaz is not a pocket winger. He is a, I'm going to get in behind the back line. I like to stay wide, go 1v1 to get to the end line type of winger. So really, you see the two differences there. On to our final question, staying in the state of Ohio. That one sort of turned into a Columbus crew question. Now we're moving to FC Cincinnati. This one is from Eric Harping who asks, is FC Cincinnati better off going forward using the more attacking formation they've used down two goals from now on? Context, because this question came in during the week. The situation in the game that Eric is talking about is from a couple weeks ago. This is against NYCFC. When Cincinnati were down two goals, they changed the shape to something more attacking. It applies to now, though, as well, because against the New York Red Bulls recently, Yapstam kept a more attacking formation. Against NYCFC, it was more of a 5-3-2 for the last 25 minutes. Against the Red Bulls, it was more of a 5-2-1-2 with Kubo underneath Brandon Vasquez and Jurgen Locadia. Those mm-hmm. are both more attacking variants of the 5-3-2 that he'd been using that Cincinnati had really been struggling to create chances in. Uh, well, I think the first thing that comes to mind is... I believe Yapstam did a good job of instilling defensive principles in this squad after being slapped in the face with how easily MLS teams can break you down if you don't have that. And so, yes, his first game in charge was not what he hoped it to be with that 4-0, I'm just going to call it a whooping. Shellacking. Yeah, shellacking against uh, Columbus Crew. But then he was like, all right, well, we're going to start with the defensive side. And in order to do that, you almost have to overcorrect. And they overcorrected. They were not pleasant to watch at all. It's a really, really low block, condensed, a 5-3-2. And it it was difficult, difficult to watch those games. But I think by instilling that and playing a few games that way, they've now gotten to this place where they can have variance in how they defend and how they attack. And that's what I see. It's really out of the same structure, a 5-3-2, or it turns into sometimes Jow pushes high and it looks like a 4-2, I don't know, Jow is over here randomly, but it's like almost <laughs> a 4-2-1-3 at times because Jow pushes so high. Their wingbacks do a really good job of transitioning up high. And then if they lose the ball, they quickly, they don't always go straight back into a five back. Sometimes they'll just pull one of those wing backs back and be in a four back. So I think there's a lot of variance in the way that this FC Cincinnati team defends, which allows them to have variance in how they're attacking. The way that Yap Stam sets up his possession structure is so interesting to me. Because yes, the formation has changed and the attacking players have changed. And to directly address Eric's question, I do firmly believe that yes, using more attacking personnel like Stam did against NYCFC and against the Red Bulls, bringing on on Brandon Vasquez into Mm -hmm. the lineup, those are good things. And that allows you to get more numbers forward more often. And that's important because Cincinnati are last right now in MLS in terms of expected goals. So if they're going to score more goals, getting more guys high up the field is a good place to start. But getting back to the tactics, the way Cincinnati attack and possess the ball is really interesting. Their center backs aren't overly comfortable playing out of pressure. And so what they'll do is they'll bring Harris Madunian in 
deep from that number six spot. He's playing mm-hmm. as one of the double pivot in this lineup now in this 5-2-1-2 two, two, or whatever you want to call it. He's playing in that double pivot, but he'll move back and become part of the back line. Mm-hmm. So then it takes three center backs. It fans them out even more. And those players become the back four. Right. I don't know if that's a good idea. I don't know if it's a bad idea. It's not necessarily creating a lot of chances right now still. But having Madunian in deep at least allows them to do something with the ball in buildup. And then that can get Frankie Amaya on the ball as that single pivot in space. Yuya Kubo higher up the field as the attacking midfielder. Maybe he's finally found a consistent role for Cincinnati now. There are, I don't, again, I don't know if they're good things or bad things, but there are things happening with Cincinnati that if they stick with this five, two, one, two, is that 10 players? That is 10 players. Five, two, one, two. If they stick yeah. with that shape. <laughs> There are things that we could see them build on that will help them create more consistent attacking opportunities. And also with Madunian coming back, he's so good at distribution. And so I think one of the ways that ICFC Cincinnati attack is they use a long ball from their back line into the two target forwards, Lacadia or Vasquez. And they say, I don't, we don't really care if you win it, but we're going to win the second ball. And they are a second ball, uh, dominant team because that by bringing by bringing Madunian in back into the back line and fanning those players out it's actually bringing the team especially against New York Red Bull who's going to press a little bit higher and I feel like they've reverted to a little bit more aggressive of a press as of late they pulled players out so then there was a big gap between the back line and the front line for both teams and so Madunian and playing that ball into the target forwards, I saw this when they played the Columbus crew as well. Those two players just trying to challenge for the ball. If they win it, great. If they don't, FC Cincinnati is determined with Yuyo, mostly Yuyo Kubo to win that second ball. And I don't have those stats, but I would be really curious what their second ball retention is because I feel like they are pretty high in that rate. Can I say one thing? And this is actually yeah. the last thing I have to say for this entire Perfect. episode. Okay. Joe Zhao has been very good for FC Cincinnati. He has been the most engaging, energetic attacker on this team consistently Mm -hmm. since the start of the Yopstam era. Playing as that right wing back, where he's sometimes a right midfielder or a right winger, doesn't matter. Then against NYCFC, he played left wing after the formation change, and he was still dangerous there. Joe Zhao has been the constant when Jurgen Locadia, Sim de Jong, and Yuya Kubo haven't been for Cincinnati. And so I wanted to shout him out because he's been really fun to watch on that right side. Shout out, Zhao. Perfect. I don't know. I don't know. That just felt like it was right. <laughs> it, it did feel right. I'm glad you felt that too. Okay, Jordan. That was fun. We did it. Listeners, thank you guys so much for the questions. We appreciate you. Jordan, thanks for bringing it with the answers as you always do. One other thing. I lied. I said that was the last thing. Come on, Joe. I'm I know. <laughs> I got to work on it. I'm trying to get down on my lying habit. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, share it. If you yes. liked it, share it with a soccer-loving friend. Share it with someone who you can convert to Major League Soccer. Leave us a review and a rating if you would be so kind. It helps us out a lot, and we appreciate you even if you don't. Thank you guys so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate it. So we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Thanks, Jordan.